city-based anti-trafficking organization, Beauty for Freedom, and co-host of Breaking Distance, our podcast with the mission of connecting communities while igniting change. We have a very special Pride episode this evening that we're recording, and we're speaking with incredible guests who have been connected through culture, the arts, and activism, influences that have shaped the queer culture, pride movement, and LGBTQ plus rights and advocacy in San Francisco and beyond. We're so excited to share a conversation this evening with artist, credit in the straight world, film director, and the Nervous Breakdowns band founder, Keala Ramos. And Anna Smitty-Smith, a nonprofit industrial complex rabble rouser, and Miss Major Griffin Gracie, a transgender activist advocate and the executive director of the Griffin Gracie Educational Retreat and Historical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you all so much for joining us this evening. I'm so excited to have this conversation. And I really wanna start with Keala Ramos. Uh, Keala is my connecting point to all of these amazing people uh, and we've known each other for over 10 years, and I'm a huge fan of the Nervous Breakdowns. Kiala, can you start off by sort of like expanding on that introduction and how uh, the Nervous Breakdowns really formed? I arrived in San Francisco not knowing what to expect. I did want something, I wanted to be embraced by what I thought would be queer culture, um, but I realized it was not instantly accessible. Um, so I sort of had to find my place within that. Um, I, I got into art school, went to the Academy of Art, and I had to find um, friends. I had to start all over. And I was still pursuing music but with no bands, but I wanted to be in one. So all those things were happening. Those were th all the things I were pursuing. It was film, art, music. And that was something San Francisco could provide for someone like me who's from an island. The friends that I made ended up becoming my bandmates. I wasn't, because I couldn't fit into the music scene um, because of how I, the way I wanted to do it, or the kind of music I wanted to write. It, and I, that, the music scene in itself was a scene. The queer scene is a scene. Everything, there's so many scenes and I, Coming from an island, I just didn't know how to get into them. So I sort of just went with any way I could get in. And that if I didn't have bandmates and I didn't have access to the music world, booking gigs and whatever, then I had to look at the friends that I had. And those friends ended up jumping on board with me and becoming my bandmates, even though they weren't musicians per se. And that's how I created my band. It was a bunch of uh, weirdos who just were friends of mine that I socialized with and I met through school or socializing or drinking. And then once I built my band and I got out of art school, I just kept going with it. And it seemed like a re ridiculous idea, but I didn't think it was ridiculous. I mean, I really wanted it to work and I really thought that I could make something of myself like any of the other bands. So when I applied that, I still couldn't play a stage, so I just started playing on the sidewalks of San Francisco alone. And once I figured out how to do that, um, with no permits or not legally, I decided to bring my friends that had learned music with me and I just jam with them and show them how to play their min minuscule parts. Whether I didn't know how to play drums, but I taught the drummer how to play some things and like the basis how to play bass uh, loosely. And when I put that together, then I said, 
okay, well, I've been busking on the street. Let me just pull you guys in. And I'd often go to the gay district. I go to Castro street and play in this particular doorway because the acoustics were good. And it's a, um, it's a hardware store and it's like, you know, most of those businesses in Castro are all gay owned. So I felt very safe performing there um, acoustically. So when I went full on electric, I brought my friends in and we just rented a generator and just went. And it was spectacular and terrifying at the same time. And it was completely illegal. Um, the first time I did lesbian barbecue, which was a precursor to the Dyke March, which is what happens the day before Pride. Um, I feel like the day before Pride in San Francisco is sort of like the Misfits version of Pride. So Pride is early and it's bright and it's parades and it's huge and it goes on for hours. The night before is different. So the Pride the night before, the sort of the marker for when it starts is when the Dyke March uh, comes in and it goes through... Um, it, it, it goes through, it tours San Francisco and then it ends in the Castro and then the evening begins. So I was working a temp job in San Francisco because I wasn't being paid to be an artist. You know, I had a day job and I met a girl who actually, I didn't identify, I didn't identify at work as gay because I didn't want to be ostracized for it. And this is San Francisco, 1999. But um, this girl that I worked with turned out to be a lesbian. So we sort of came out to each other and her girlfriend was Smitty. So um, they had a, decided to have a, what we deemed the lesbian barbecue right before the dyke march. And she just said, hey, um, my girlfriend and I are gonna have this pre-game party to before uh, the dyke march do the nervous breakdowns when I play it, having never heard us, you know? And as someone that never gets gigs and was never allowed to have that access, I took what I could get and I took that. So I was like, yeah, give me the address and time. And we hauled all our gear there. And that was the beginning, that was the beginning of the, or that was the beginning of our gigging, what you would call the nervous breakdowns first gigs. It's I'm just sort of like getting a mental picture. And Smitty, I want to bring you into the conversation now as well. Your relationship, we had this conversation before with Keala, kind of started during this time and with the big lesbian barbecue and this sort of like time and the history of pride in San Francisco. What was the Dyke March? What was the big lesbian barbecue? Like what were these sort of like iconic, uh, you know, parts of pride culture and history? And then you know, how, how did the nervous breakdowns kind of fit into that? Yeah, well, so this, um, just so you know, these days, I think of the beginning of Pride Weekend as Friday, because these days we have a trans march on Fridays in San Francisco, but that started later. That started in about 2004, I think, was the first one in Dolores Park. Um, so yeah, this is pre-trans march. So yeah, pre-trans march, we had Dyke March, and it was an unpermitted uh, event where we would literally, uh, there'd be an organizing committee, and we'd march by the hundreds through uh, the Mission District and then circle back up through the Castro. So, um, you know, I remember at 
in the early beginnings when the city was really unprepared for this, uh, we'd be blocking bus routes, I mean, and really kind of wreaking havoc on the traffic in those areas because they didn't, you know, you would think they would kind of get it after a few years, but it really took them a while to really understand that this is going to be an ongoing uh, event. And more than an event, it really was uh, a protest, uh, you know, a unifying gathering. Um, it was just amazing to stand out on the corner of, say, 20th and Church and look down over Dolores Park and just see a sea of women um, and women of all genders. So, you know, and that's kind of uh, where the trans march was was starting to uh, build in, you know, pre pre 2004, build steam is building out of that event. And, and also out of, you know, not fitting in at Pride, that's kind of why Dyke March uh, also evolved is we didn't really feel that we had a space at Pride. So we made our own space. Yeah, you kind of spoke a bit about when we had our, our conversation before about, you know, creating this safe space in a place where you felt completely comfortable and, and completely embraced within your community. Uh, I know that during this time that you met Keala and the Nervous Breakdowns actually performed, you know, one of the first performances um, at the Big Lesbian Barbecue. I mean, what what was that experience like bringing Keala in, you know, and, and having him sort of like be a part of this movement? Oh, it was so fun and so perfect because, yeah, I think the uh, comparison to Super Bowl is actually right on because, um, you know, I have a lot of friends, actually probably more friends that are non-lesbian than I do lesbian. And um, but it really was, you know, Pink Saturday, uh, Dyke March specifically was really our special celebration. So I really would make it a point to just invite my lesbian friends over and have it be our little celebration. And then to bring um, Keala and his band. I mean, honestly, I just fell in love with Keala the moment I met him. He's, he's just fantastic. And so uh, he brought his band and like he said, sight, uh, sight unseen or unheard really. And um, you know, his band was like two gay guys and two straight women. And so it was kind of funny to have this, you know, the, this band, this non-lesbian band playing at the, Big Lesbian Barbecue. And to answer your earlier question, uh, the Big Lesbian Barbecue had actually been happening for years and years and years. But um, all I have to say is probably my most memorable memories um, have to do with Keala's presence at the, at the barbecue. I really think that took it up a notch. It seems like it was such an exciting time for celebrating one another and celebrating the lesbian community, celebrating the community of trans women and trans men. We were on the precipice of gaining a greater knowledge throughout the world and an understanding of LGBTQ plus rights, activism, the whole culture. I, I want to also at this time bring in Miss Major and Smitty, I would love for you to, to actually expand on the introduction uh, to, to kind of discuss or talk about how you came to know Miss Major and some of the work that y'all have done together as well. I was about 26 years old when I met Miss Major. Uh, I had started working at the Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center. And I was actually um, 
half time working kind of the front desk like an admin and half time uh, being their volunteer coordinator. So in those days, you kind of wore many hats at small AIDS organizations. Um, I remember one day uh, some, uh, someone came in or someone was going to come in to visit my coworker, Jocelyn Rowe, who uh, was very much a tenderloin community activist. And um, when that person came in, that person was over six foot tall, had this amazing platinum hair standing on end. And that's what I remember about Miss Major and this amazing, amazingly beautiful smile. And um, I mean, she may have even called me sugar at that point. I, I, I don't remember. I just remember it was just, um, it was just a moment in time that I won't forget uh, the moment that I met Major. So that, that's when I met Major. We ended up working together and um, we would go to lunch all the time. We'd hang out after work. And in a way, we were kind of inseparable friends. And so one of my coworkers nicknamed us Major and Minor because of our uh, ex extreme age difference. Miss Major, you've been... A, just as your name states, a major part of um, history for LGBTQ plus rights and what you've done in the transgender community, uh, specifically uh, working uh, to help to support uh, transgender women of color in particular who have been incarcerated you know, I had a chance to watch Major last night and actually Kelly and I were both watching it. Um, and it, just the work that you've done is such an inspiration. And I, I don't even think words on the page can really explain the contribution that you've made throughout the world. So I just want to thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, your work with, uh, with the foundations that support uh, survivors and also um, people who have been uh, affected by HIV and AIDS and you uh, meeting Smitty and working with Smitty. What was that time in history like and that time, um, you know, in, in, in the fight to, to find a cure? What, what was the type of work that y'all were doing together? Um, it was kind of, interesting because um with her working with people who were coming in as a volunteer um it got to be it was very kind of funny <laughs> the way they went about their doing it and uh Smith and i besides our friendship it turned into um a, a labor of love um, we really did appreciate what was going on. We enjoyed the camaraderie that was in there, especially with the girls, because they understood what was happening. Uh, they were not going to let it keep them down. Mm. So, therefore, Sven and I kept them together, you know, kept the group going. Um, we uh, got the building next door to talk and um, 
then it just branched off into a whole separate thing. Um, they would come in and we would talk to them and um, it turned into an interesting project. Yeah, yeah. I, I also saw uh, some of the work that you were doing and I don't know if it was at the, um, at Tenderloin or not, but with the, you know, taking the mobile clinics all around the Bay Area and uh, being able to, to offer condoms to, and, you know, to be able to offer syringes and things like that um, out on the streets. It seemed like there was a lot of, you know, I mean, and Smitty, you can also, you know, jump in here on this as well. Um, what, what that, mobilizing you i mean you were mobilizing actually going out into the streets to support people and help people that maybe weren't able to actually come into the to the clinics and 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 to get support in that way yeah but um we kind of i think we started started that and um it got to where it was done with conjunction of another agency and i and uh, we went to several different spots, um, the Bodega Park, the Polk Street, you know, and it was well received. Um, the girls really did like it a lot. Yeah. What do you say, me? Oh, yeah. Like they say in the major documentary, um, Miss Major really was the star of the show for the mobile outreach, and it really wouldn't begin until she got there. <laughs> so, yeah, she really, people um, people would follow Major wherever she went. So, you know, when she, uh, she spoke earlier about um, us acquiring uh, a second building next door to Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center, she worked magic with that side of the building and she kind of just, uh, she created a transgender program from scratch out of a building that was in a barely, barely habitable. Um, you know, me as a volunteer coordinator, I would get my volunteers in there to help clean out the building. And once it was uh, cleaned out, you know, she brought in furniture and just made it like a second home for people. She created a true, a true drop-in center. And, you know, Major will probably talk about this a little bit later, but she recently uh, started her own organization and it's called the Griffin Gracie Educational Retreat and Historical Center, also known as the House of Gigi in honor of Griffin Gracie, her parents. Um, and that drop-in center that she started at TARC, and we call it TARC, that stands for Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center, uh, that really was the beginnings. I mean, she called her program Gigi's back then. Um, you know, So it was really kind of the beginning of this vision. Well, she's had the vision for a while, but that was, you know, the it was starting to come to fruition back in the Tenderloin in the 90s. And now, uh, she's made it happen in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's incredible. Yeah. And I know that, you know, um, having a grassroots organization myself to find the funding and to get the, the support to have like a brick and mortar space is not easy. <laughs> um, it is very, 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 very difficult. Like 
Can you talk a bit about how you were able to, you know, make these great strides and, and create your own foundation? Uh, well, I came to Arkansas because I knew that the women in the South were suffering so bad. Mm. And so I wanted them to have a chance at what life was like in the big city. And uh, I came down here and slowly but surely I started uh, Hostel GG. And um, now we have a, a building and we have started an oasis. And it's a place to come to when you have had too much. And it's kind of like uh, a, a home away from home. Uh, it's a place to relax, get your nerves together, and then go back and continue the fight. Yeah. And we always continue the fight. Absolutely. And, yeah. and speaking on that, that point as well, being a, a transgender activist from everything that I've read about you and, and have seen about you, uh, a leader in this movement, the pride movement wasn't always so, I, I don't know how to, how to say it. Um, what, um, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to say it in a way that's not, you know, going to step on any toes, but hasn't always been so accommodating for, um, okay. Yes. Yes. Accommodating. Um, and actually, and Kiala also made this comment too. He did not feel as if he had a true representation within the pride movement. And so he had to create a lane for the nervous breakdowns and for, for himself and a space and a safe space. And the big lesbian barbecue was that safe space for him. You know, what was that safe space and what was that, um, that home within the pride movement for the transgender community? Uh, well, we still haven't gotten it yet. Mm. They have a uh, black lives matter and they forget about the transgender people that are black. So it should be all black lives matter, mm. but we have to fight to get it correct. And when we do that, then, and only then will people be all right. Mm. Because as long as one of us is still being mistreated, that means none of us are treated fairly. And so I believe that um, when they do wake up to that fact, it's transgender girls and the guys are a part of this movement, mm. uh, then we'll see a change. Absolutely. I would, and Smitty, can you comment on that as well? Yeah, I mean, frankly, you know, as a, so I identify as a butch lesbian, but, you know, if you look at the transgender umbrella, technically I fall under that umbrella as well because I am a, a woman who, you know, wears men's clothes and has a more masculine appearance. So I fall under kind of a gender non-conforming uh, label, also kind of like a trans-masculine label, even though, you know, I don't, uh, I don't identify as a he, but, but I also don't really care what pronouns people use for me because, 
it's no, it's no big deal as long as they're addressing me with respect. And that's something I learned from Miss Major, you know, that it, it really is all about respect. Now, you know, so, uh, yeah, the, I, I don't think there was a space for the L. I don't think there was a space for the B or the T at Pride. It was very much kind of a... a a gay white male space. And um, yeah, it wasn't a very welcoming space. I mean, I could say that about the Castro as well. When I first moved there in the early 90s, uh, I would actually get some kind of um, rude treatment. Uh, and I've been with Miss Major when we've been in the Castro and been to the gay bars. And uh, uh, later than the years that I got my rude treatment, then I saw her get her rude treatment. And, um, you know, so. I believe people can evolve and there's been some some evolution within the LGBT community to to welcome uh, the others who are not part of the kind of the GWM master, you know, master community. But um, but yeah, it's it's taken a long time. And like Major said, uh, we're still not there. You know, we're not there within our own LGBT community and we're clearly not there. in this country because, you know, transgender rights were just rolled back again last week. I um, want to, I want to bring Kiala back into this conversation because I think it's so relevant to the film that he is creating credit in the straight world and the whole concept of creating a safe space for yourself when nobody else will, even within your own community, you know, um, Kiala, can you comment on, you know, what, what kind of led you to create this lane, which was, which, which has ended up being the nervous breakdowns in every incarnation that it has been, you know, from San Francisco to New York and, and, and everywhere in, in Hawaii, um, kind of talk about creating that space and what, what the vision has always been for the, for the nervous breakdowns and, and making yourself a place to belong within this movement. Anything I create or do in like nervous breakdowns is my, my child. It's first of all, all encompassing because I never want people to feel what I felt when I had to go through these things to get to, I guess, generally speaking is my identity, whether it's sexuality, fitting into the music scene when there's not a, uh, you know, there were, there was RuPaul by the time I wanted to make music, but I wanted to play guitar and scream. I wanted to be Courtney Love, but that wasn't represented. So I always just thought, I just wanted to make something where everyone could actually believe that you were able to sort of arm yourself uh, to be any of those things. It was like zero limitations. I was interviewing this subject, a musician who's born and raised in San Francisco. And I forgot to ask her what she thought of the nervous breakdowns. When she did find me, her first memory of me, and we became friends later, um, I completely forgot. I was in a doorway on the Castro and I was dressed up as Courtney Love, my guitar hero. This is about visualization, which applies to everything. It's practically a science. We don't need a degree. We don't need to fit in anywhere. I'd visualize myself as Courtney Love in order for me to get out into that doorway and become this sort of like rock and roll Valkyrie. But that's what I needed for me to get out and say what I had to say. 
wasn't offered a stage, so I just created my own. And my stage became a street side. It became a sidewalk. It became a, a doorway. That's really what the spirit of the nervous breakdowns is. Generally, it should be all-encompassing because I think we all have that need or a secret desire, which shouldn't be a secret. Like, if you want to do something, just do it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's it's one thing that I, that I even saw in New York City was you creating a safe space for everyone to be able to connect with your music, you know, and that it it was it transcended so many different things. And it, it really brought a lot of people, a lot of different people together and gave them a place to feel like they belong because they're, you know, uh, even the most raw emotional occurrences or things that were happening, which you cover a lot in your music, you know, we can all relate to that. Like your one song detour, which is one of my favorite songs, actually, you know, we all take detours in life. And what does that mean? What does that look like for each one of us? You know? Um, but, um, but yeah, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and actually I want to, I want to bring you back into the conversation, Smitty, because I wanted to talk about the AIDS crisis and the fact that a lot of people today sort of feel as if it's not a crisis anymore and that people aren't being affected by it. And a lot of the organizations have actually ceased to exist, you know, as I'm doing research on some of the organizations that you used to volunteer for and work with, some of the, uh, many of them don't exist anymore. You know, um, I want to talk a bit about that and also uh, the union organizing work that you've done and what that has meant to you and also to, to the movement. Yeah. My, um, my first you know, I've been working since I was about 15 or 16. As soon as I could start working, I wanted to work. Uh, but my first kind of real office job was at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And uh, I started volunteering there. Um, I had started volunteering for Stop AIDS Project before then. And my, my kind of connection with HIV and AIDS the reason I started volunteering in the first place is because I met someone with HIV who was my age. Um, my friend, uh, Stephen Barnett, uh, a wonderful, wonderful gay man, gay Chicano man. And um, so uh, that's kind of how I ended up at the AIDS Foundation volunteering. Uh, I met um, uh, someone who would then become another dear friend of mine, uh, Frank Ovulus at the AIDS Foundation and he kind of took me under his wing and he helped get me a job at the AIDS Foundation. And, um, you know, it was a time where they were just starting to unionize or, you know, they were organizing for that. And uh, he had to convince his coworkers. He says, he says, I know, I know she looks like a white woman, but, but trust me, she's half Latina and she's on board with the union. So uh, he, that's how he brought me in. He, you know, kind of, he got me into the AIDS Foundation. So, you know, we began working together. So I, I was coming in, um, you know, on the tail end of the union organizing. There were absolutely people there who were there at the beginning of the union organizing. Um, at the time I was brought in, I think I was the youngest person on staff. I was about 23 years old in 1993. 
so yeah, I mean, honestly, most of my my activism in my entire life has been done from within systems. So just like there is a, a, a prison industrial complex, um, I believe there is absolutely a nonprofit industrial complex. And so, you know, what I do is I get my foot in the door, um, probably thanks to my white privilege, and then I try to make changes once I'm there. You know, if I see if I see things going on that um, could use a little adjusting or fixing. So um, that was my story at the AIDS Foundation. Like many other union activists there, uh, I was fired. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the price of speaking out in the workplace. Um, I then went on to work at uh, Glide Memorial. Um, they had a, a AIDS project called Glide Goodlet, um, HIV AIDS project uh, named after Dr. Carlton Goodlet. And yeah, you're correct. Um, a lot of those places don't exist anymore. That then became Glide Health Services after I left there. Um, and after Glide, I went to work at uh, Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center. Um, in later years, that became Tenderloin Health Services, and then it finally folded. Um, I'm remembering some uh, activism there where actually it was involving myself, Miss Major, and another fierce uh, Latina lesbian named Yvette Balderas. And us three kind of banded together, and uh, we were having some management problems. You know, we had a manager, I won't mention his name, but maybe Major, major will, but um, I won't, <laughs> just to spare him. But, um, you know, it, it, things weren't working out with him as the executive director. And so us three kind of banded together, and, I mean, it's kind of like a military coup. We, we got him out of there. And uh, I know at the time I was really advocating for a black trans woman to take over as director. And uh, we had a black trans woman who had applied to be director and that's Sharon Grayson, a very good friend of Miss Majors, um, who I also worked with at Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center. So, um, you know, that didn't work out. I ended up leaving kind of in protest and, uh, and that was that. Um, hey, but at least I wasn't fired. So. <laughs> Absolutely. And Miss Major, I hear you kind of giggling over there. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of remembering that time. Can you kind of chime in on uh, uh, what Smitty is speaking about as well? That was a very interesting time. <laughs> but. Um... <laughs> We did a lot of good work. Um, a lot of it is known, you know, and, um, but um, the boss that we <laughs> challenged, we got him fired. <laughs> so that was pretty good. But um, with the AIDS crisis, you know, so many young people were dying. And the same of this is these agencies have closed their doors and they need to have kept them open. Mm. Uh, this thing is nowhere near uh, done. You know, um, 
they still don't have a cure for this. They still don't have the tools that they need to fight it. So, and now we have a new pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, and we have to say shut in uh, to provide stuff. So, um, it it's just saying that they shut the doors on these age work, you know, um, and these kids out here nowadays think that um, it's over, you know, the worst is it's past and they can go back to life was, you know. So I just don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah, I think there's so many misconceptions and none of us have been educated enough on, you know, how we have to stay diligent in fighting this. You know, I've had several of my friends that passed away from AIDS as well. And um, one in particular was my sister's best friend when I was a teenager, kind of like, you know, taught me so much about life and, you know, um, just the fact that people aren't even really talking about it as much anymore. and therefore, if we're not talking about it, we're not educating ourselves. And if we're not educating ourselves, then you know the resources aren't out there for us either. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, it, it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> Back of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even our own president last week, uh, I couldn't believe he said this, but he mistakenly told the world that there was an AIDS vaccine and that all you have to do, take one little pill and your life will be fine. So this, uh, you know, coming from supposedly the top of the line here in the United States, that's the messaging that we're getting about AIDS. And uh, that's ridiculous in 2020. You know, that's that's so shocking. You know, I don't think that's an accidental, you know, it, it would be hard for somebody to accidentally say say something so stupid, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But what what resources are available now? What what are like a couple of organizations that are still doing the work within this space? Well, it depends upon what work uh are referring to because AIDS isn't uh a viable thing now so it depends upon what it is you are looking for yeah the the foundation does still exist and they keep going and uh you know they were such a big business back in the 90s they still remain kind of a big business um a lot of the AIDS organizations had to blend with uh, breast cancer organizations. Um, And so, uh, but yeah, a lot of the smaller AIDS organizations, the grassroots ones are gone. But uh, my understanding is AIDS Foundation is still there. Shanti Project is still there, AIDS Health Project. I'm just talking about San Francisco specifically, you know, right now. Um, There are absolutely other AIDS organizations still out there, but um, yeah, the attention really uh, went away went away from AIDS. It was never given the attention it it deserved anyways. I mean, we had a, you know, Ronald Reagan who wouldn't utter the word uh, AIDS for, you know, until it was, uh, 
really beyond beyond an epidemic. Yeah, yeah. I want to kind of once again switch gears just a little bit, and I actually wanted to speak directly with you, Miss Major, as well. Watching Major, seeing uh, just what is happening and how the transgender community is treated within the prison system is appalling. It's really appalling and it just makes me really sick to my stomach, you know, uh, particularly some things that have happened in Rikers right there in New York where we, uh, I've lived in the last few years and Kiala also as a New Yorker. Uh, can you speak about some of the work that you have been doing to create reform and what needs to be done? I know that's kind of like a, it's an overarching, like, <laughs> it's a broad <laughs> statement, I know. But yeah. what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I started work in uh, upstate New York, in uh, Greenhaven. And um, it was really uh, just a bad scene. And um, I got transferred to Greenhaven and met uh at, at the time, uh, Big Black. And um, he brought me to the realization that what I've seen was not been near a, a, enough to realize that my girls were suffering because of the system. And I guess the hard part about it was that it was so invasive and so kept under wraps, you know, that um, it would include the jail where they lived. The towns really sprung up because the jail was there, you know. So it was a, just a horrible, horrible situation. And um, it's continued basically till today, you know, that this thing goes on still in there. So I'm hoping that Black Lives Matter will get that change to where it at least, you know, it should be abolished. That's just so it should be abolished. And in doing so, we should create a system that gives them the benefit of the doubt. So that I guess you could say that jails do the thing exactly what they were meant to do when they created them back when cowboys chased Indians. Um, the jails were made at that time to house them and keep them away from their families and friends so to say that uh, it's better is not true that it's continuing on that is true and i feel that the only way to combat this is to break it down and start over again mm. 
Do you think that the future could hold a world that doesn't have prisons or at least a country that doesn't have them? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've really thought about it and they need a system that they put the person away that deserves it, mm. you know, and what deserves it, you know, um, arrest somebody for marijuana, say. Mm. Was it Jacobs, you know? So I believe that it can exist in a world without prisons. Mm. Now, we get there. I don't know. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I want to I want to go back to Kiala. I want you to get a little bit into Credit in the Straight World, putting this film project together. What exactly is your intent with this project? The name of it, we talked about that, you know, it, it can have a lot of different connotations, you know, what, what does it mean to you? And like, how will you sort of like manifest that vision? I think I forgot, you know, maybe I, I should say I forgot where I came from. And I, you know, I'm originally from Hawaii. Um, but in New York, people ask like, you know, what do you do? Where are you from? And, you know, in Hawaii, they ask like, what part of the island are you from? What high school did you go to? You know, these questions like, what do you do? And that's sort of supposed to justify um, who you are. And that's like a weird, it's an interesting question. So I felt like I lived 20 lives by the time I got to New York. And then I had been cleaning my like cubby hole of an apartment. And I found these stock, these tapes um, that didn't even work anymore with technology. So I had to find an old camcorder and I pumped it in. So I started cleaning and watching it. And then I had walked into the room and I was like, what the hell is this? And it was, you know, this guy with a blonde wig on and uh, people screaming and uh, singing and the drummer's kick drum is falling apart and the bassist is in her own world. And what, who's the other guy playing guitar? This Asian guy. And, it, and I, in that moment, it's one of the things that like I learned in film school or when you curate something or you, when you learn to write, you, you look, it's very important. The story is the most important part of uh, film art, anything. So there was instantly an arc and uh, I was both happy, sad, terrified looking at it. And I didn't uh, in those few seconds actually recognize that I was in that frame. And then within that frame was also this band. And within that frame, you know, further into the frame, this is San Francisco at a certain time. So it made an impression on me, even though I was like there and I had recorded it. So from there I had to consult someone just to get their professional opinion. And the drummer in that frame was the girl that I met to play drums at film school. And she went on to become a producer so she was like, bring the footage with you. Let's talk about this the next time you're in California. And when I went, she was like, we actually ended up talking for two hours. She didn't look at any of the footage. She said, this needs to be a feature film. Just from a visual standpoint, this is the story of San Francisco. This is 50 different things happening at the same time. 
and maybe we're not all accepted the same, you know, with pride and within certain communities. But when you actually take a picture of it, it is, there's a lot going on. So I didn't want to name the film The Nervous Breakdowns or something. I, I didn't want to uh, limit it to that, you know, because the band is a reflection of whatever was happening at San Francisco at that time. I wanted to ask, you know, speaking of this being Pride Month and uh, the, the sort of like uh, beginnings of uh, pride in San Francisco in, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when, you know, y'all were all there together, what it sort of like meant and felt like for each one of you, and then also where it's going or where it should go and where we should go with it as allies and supporters and, you know, one global community. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my first memory of San Francisco Pride was probably uh, around 92, 93, when I first got there, I made sure and go. But um, <laughs> to be quite honest, I think I was uh, quite sauced, as, as were many people at Pride. Um, it, for a young person at Pride, it was just kind of a big party atmosphere. So I think I missed the parade and uh, went straight to the kind of the fun stage and all those things afterwards. It was just a, a time to run around and really celebrate. Um, you know, I, I, uh, once I discovered the Dyke March, that really became kind of my, my headquarters. I kind of started skipping Pride Sunday uh, and would hang out at Dyke March. I would throw parties, the big lesbian barbecue before the Dyke March. Um, and then I think in later years, um, when I wasn't living as close to uh, Dolores Park, I would actually throw the parties at Dolores Park, set up kind of a camp and people would show up there. Um, I was one of those people who kind of always broke the rules with Dyke March. They really wanted to keep it a Dyke's only space, but my friends were really all over the map, everybody. You know, I had friends from all walks of life, um, straight, gay, you know, LGBT, like the whole, the whole everything. And um, so I was one of those people that would bring everybody because I was just so thankful they were celebrating me and my day. So, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my experience with Pride. Uh, in more recent years, um, sadly, I've found that uh, the Dyke March has just, it's not my space anymore. It, uh, it got kind of taken over. I mean, there was even a straight wedding part, you know, sorry, sorry, straight friends if I'm offending you, but there was a straight wedding at the Dyke March, uh, like a couple of years ago or a few years ago. And that was kind of the last straw for me. So actually these days I, uh, I start, uh, or I celebrate pride at trans March now, uh, which is Friday night. Um, and that was started, I think I mentioned in 2004, and it was Sam Davis, a trans man, who put together the first program uh, for the Dolores Park portion of Trans March. Um, so let's see, let's see. So yeah, in terms of where Pride is, Pride has um, had a lot of inner turmoil, uh, a lot of infighting within the community about SF Pride and um, who's running it and what direction they're taking. Um, you know, uh, 
I, they did make a great decision, or actually it was, I guess, the community that made the decision um, a few years ago to have Miss Major be the community grand marshal. So that was fantastic. But, uh, but other than that, sadly, the SF Pride Parade is a very commercialized uh, corporate event, and um, it really needs to get back to the protest that it started as. Um, in all of these years that the Pride Parade has been happening, we've never had, and we, meaning the LGBT community, have never had anything to not protest there was always something to protest. Someone is always attacking our rights or taking away our rights um, or harming us in some way. So there's no excuse for us uh, to not have a once a year protest. Um, so that, those are kind of my thoughts on, you know, where we are and where should, where we should go. Thank you so much, Smitty. Thank you for that. And um, Ms. Major, I'd love to get your comments next. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, pride. Okay. Originally, pride was supposed to be a sense of unity within yourself. Uh, pride in what you stood for, who you were, um, and what you, what your belief is. Uh, then it went to the sexualization of, oh God, what, <laughs> what each group felt they were. And um, it seems as if you put in the, you had in um, the pride um, these moments of clarity whereby the drag queens were immortalized and um they got to show off their their stuff you know um i don't think trans people really were a part of that and um it was really hurtful um in a sense to them um i yeah, I felt it as it was not what it's supposed to be. Um, but um, I was the Grand Marshal one year, and um, I thought that it was trying to change, but um, it wasn't. Um, they had the police as parade and all kinds of stuff. And to me, that wasn't what the parade is for. Um, where to go, it would be really nice if it was encompassing of all different factions of a gay lifestyle. And that includes transgender people, you know. Um, but it's hard for us to do it. Yeah, but thank you so much for that comment. And yes, yeah, Kiala, I wanted to get your your comment as well. Maybe we are we are saying the same thing, but I've always felt sort of left out. Whether that's then or now, I still 
there's a, as much to learn from what happened then as much as there is now. So I'm still doing, I'm still, that's how I'm reacting. And I, I just wish people would react more and think for themselves because it's so easy to just sort of assign yourself to like, you know, pride or BLM and just generalize it when in fact it's if it's not embracing everyone that's what miss major said then it's not complete and it's false right i'll do what i can but i'm going to do it my way especially if i don't feel like i have a voice what i've learned from and and it's still applicable to now that i am a representation so whatever i say and that's how that's what i would hope that people understand too in the present with pride is like what you have to say is um, if you're a queer person, trans, whatever, whatever you have to say, um, even if you're the only person out of the entire group that is trans or part of pride or whatever you are, um, don't wait for 50 plus people to back you. Go with your voice, you know, if that's truly what you believe, then you should be accepted by something that sounds all-encompassing like pride or black lives matter and challenge it don't be afraid to say like well i don't feel like i fit in and actually don't wait don't wait for them to offer you a space just show up take it over just show up to whatever your version of showing up but show up for yourself first and then take it from there Thank you all so much for joining the podcast tonight. Thank you so much, Smitty. Thank you, Keala. Thank you so much, Miss Major. I just want one last thing. If you each can, and we can start with Miss Major, if you can let us know the best way to support your movement, the best way to support Gigi's house, the best way to support your activism, how can we stay connected and how can we support? Oh, gosh. Um... You can find the go online and pull up House of ZZ, and all the information you need is right there. And thank you so much for having me be a part of this. Oh, it's been amazing. And, you know, all of y'all, all all three of y'all are such an inspiration. So thank you so much. And Smitty, how can we stay connected to, to what you're passionate about and support uh, the causes that you are supporting. You know, I, I highly recommend uh, supporting causes that support uh, Black trans people, Black trans women uh, specifically. So I, I really, you know, I know Miss Major, I know the good work she's been doing. I mean, for over... I guess for over 25, almost 25 years. Um, and so, yeah, I would second a vote for houseofgg.org. So it's house of, and then letter G, letter G, and then dot O-R-G. Um, and also uh, the organization that she was working with uh, before is also another fantastic organization, uh, tgijp.org. Um, so th those are two, uh, organizations that I would wholeheartedly, you know, I could, I could stand by and tell you, I've seen the great work and, uh, please, please donate if you can. 
Thank you so much, Smitty. Thank you. And thank you again for being here. And Keala, thank you so much for curating such an amazing, amazing panel, bringing so many incredible voices together. I feel like we, I really got a broader, you know, idea of what pride was like back when the nervous breakdowns was forming, you know, and, um, yeah, it was, it, this was such an amazing conversation that we had today. So I'm just super, super grateful for you. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for that. Super excited to hear you perform. Actually, I think this is my favorite Nervous Breakdown song of all the ones that you've ever performed, you know, um, for me or for us. Uh, and it has, it holds a special place in my heart. So I'm super excited to have you perform it. For the for breaking distance.
Amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for performing that song, Kiala. Thank you beautiful, for asking me to beautiful, do beautiful, beautiful. Still, you know, touches my heart like it did all those years ago. Thank you for letting me bleed <laughs> live. <laughs> absolutely absolutely i'd like to thank all of our guests this evening for joining us please 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 i beg of you please support all of these guests and their respective projects please support credit in the straight world and keala's upcoming album uh, please continue to support miss major's fundly page where funds will go towards her medical care and retirement fund and also please support the griffin gracie educational retreat and historical center which is also known as the house of Gigi. please support the transgender variant intersex justice project we'll post links on how you can support make donations in our episode notes right under the podcast play button and please subscribe to breaking distance please support us we are on spotify itunes stitcher simplecast and also on our website beautyforfreedom.org you can also follow us on social media our facebook and instagram are at beauty for freedom all spelled out and twitter at beauty the number four freedom Stay tuned for upcoming Breaking Distance episodes. We look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking, sincere, and transparent programming soon. Thank you so much. Breaking Distance. Connecting communities. Igniting change.